Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And it's good to have the choir singing again. It's good to see you here worshiping and singing. What a, what a great day, what a great God we have to serve Him. We're glad you're here with us to share in this. Paul had just given a very rich, robust theological statement for the church. Things that are non-negotiable. At the end of chapter 3, these are things that we would say we would live and die for. That's how important these truths are as you close out chapter 3. But in that context, Paul gives a warning to the church. He changes tone. I mean, it's this outbreak of worship and praise, and then there's a warning that's given to the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, stand with me as we read these first five verses. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected If it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You may be seated. Join with me as we pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your truth. What a blessing, what grace you have shown us to make yourself known. And we pray that as we open up this text that we would continue worshiping you, our great God. That we would... Come to terms with what you have said to us as a church, that each of us would examine ourselves this morning, even to make sure we're in the faith, and that if we are, that we're growing in the faith, and that we are protecting the truth, that we are living that truth out as a church family. So bless this time now as we consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've never known a time like today when more and more people are deconstructing their faith. They're turning away, they're departing. Our text actually says that there will be some who depart from the faith. Now we're going to look at what that actually means, how it applies to the church family and what it says to us today. But it's interesting with the time period that we're living in, what's happening around us? I think there are a number of questions that it brings to the forefront. One, can someone be a church member and be unsaved? It's our goal that everyone who joins Lawndale Baptist Church would be a follower of Christ, a genuine believer. That's why we have new member classes. That's why we go through interview processes. We want people not to just be members of our local church. We want them to be members of the universal church, the family of God worldwide, all across the ages, all across the continents. That's what's most important. But the local church membership is primarily an admittance by man. We're welcoming people into our church family. Again, it's why we're going over the gospel and talking about what church membership really is. 
But it doesn't always translate into everybody who joins the church being a follower of Christ. And so, yes, the the answer to that question in short is, can someone be a church member and be unsaved? Yes, it's not the way it's intended to be, but very much it does happen. Now, over the years of my ministry, I've observed at least four ways, four reasons this happens. First, some grow up in a church and never experience conversion. They're around the church, they hear the message preached, they maybe go to Sunday school, life journey group, they attend worship services, they go through vacation Bible school, they go to camps, and they're, they're just a part of the local church. And they've been that way all their lives, but there never has been a heart change. There never has been conversion. There's never been a new birth. A second reason, some grow up in a church where the gospel is not preached. We hear this regularly, where people as adults who are following Christ now will say, I grew up in a church and I never one time remember anybody sharing with me what the gospel is. That is that I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and left to myself, I would pay an eternal price of the wrath of God, but God, out of his love, sent his son Jesus to die in my place. He became my substitute. He paid the price that I deserved. And not only did he pay the price, but he shows he has power over sin because he was raised from the dead. He has the power to give us life, to bring new life to us, to give us new birth and to adopt us into God's family. And those who confess Jesus as Lord and place their faith in his death and resurrection, they become members of his family. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again and gives eternal life for those who will call on his name, those who surrender their lives to him. But some grow up in a church where they never hear the gospel preached. A third reason, some reject Christ but like the church. Now, we usually hear that the other way around. People who like Jesus but don't like the church. But there are those who just feel comfortable being in a church family. They may have grown up here or they've met a lot of nice people. Hopefully, we're a lot of nice people here. We're working on it anyway, right? But, you know, it's a good place. They do a lot of good things. And so it just seems like a good thing to do is to be in the church and to be around church. But following Christ is a whole different story. It's going to cost you a price. It's a total surrender. It's when you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And some haven't been willing to pay that price of total surrender. And then fourthly, some follow their family but not Christ. It's what our family's always done. We've, we've always been in church. We've always gone to church And they're not really following Christ, they're following their family. So oftentimes you can see how easy it would be for someone just to be a part of a church family, but to have never experienced new birth. Dean Insra wrote a whole book on this called The Unsaved Christian. Now I know that sounds like a misnomer, but a lot of people will say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they're not really following Christ. They don't meet what we see recorded in Scripture as being in the family of God. This is what Dean Insura said. Cultural Christians, that is opposed to biblical Christians, cultural Christians are those who genuinely believe they're on good terms with God because of church familiarity, a generic moral code, 
political affiliation, a religious family heritage, etc. A lot of reasons some feel like they're okay. And the basic idea of the, of the world today, the culture is, is if you're a good person, you are going to be okay. That's what is required. Well, Paul, as he's writing Timothy, knew the church would be situated in an environment like this in the first century. Much like we are in our century, in our day, in the year 2021, we're, we're in a place where people depart from the faith. So what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What is it going to require of the church? And how do we deal with this emotionally and spiritually and intellectually? And the text is dealing with that. Now, to say someone departed from the faith means that someone was present at least in and around the things of God. They were there within the church body in Ephesus. They would be serving. Some of them would even be teaching. Some would be leaders. And then they wouldn't be there. They would depart. They would leave. Now, in one way, our first question, can someone be saved and be a church member, uh, be unsaved and be a church member? Yes, it happens at times. It's not our ideal, but yes, it happens. Well, now it's a little bit different. We're actually thinking about someone who leaves the church, not just present and lost, but someone who I believe is lost, and then they leave. They depart from the faith. I, I think there are other places in Scripture that this kind of thing is talked about. Paul, when he was writing the church at Colossae, he said, I, I'm warning you about plausible arguments. That is, worldly uh, arguments that are believable, that you could make a case for to say, if the Bible didn't tell me this, I could see that line of reasoning. Now, it's not saying that it's true. It's not saying that it's right. But anytime someone subscribes to a view that's outside of Scripture, that is untruthful, there's at least some truth there and makes some kind of rational sense. That's one way we prepare our kids to go to universities and to be exposed to all kinds of ideas is to say, you know, there are a lot of those things that you're going to be taught that's going to make a lot of sense. I mean, you can make a strong case for it. Just always remember, those who are making a case for things that are unbiblical, there are just as many smart people that could make a case for a biblical argument. You, you see, it's, a, it's an argument of ideas. Whose ideas are you going to subscribe to? Are you going to believe? Is it God's, the Bible's, or is it going to be some rational ideas of men? And it does boil down to that at some point. So sometimes it's a plausible argument. When you look at the parable of the sower, I believe when all four souls are looked at, that is, kinds of human hearts, only one of them are genuinely saved. And so he talks about one kind of seed that is sown on the path. It's hard. And the devil swoops in and takes that seed. You see, the devil doesn't want the gospel disseminated. The devil doesn't want people saved. The devil will do all he can. We have an enemy. We're in a spiritual battle. And, and the devil's deception oftentimes keeps people from following Christ. It's a spiritual battle. That's why we pray for people. God, would you, would you open up their eyes and let them see your greatness, your glory, that you're the creator, that Jesus came and died for their sins. Open up their eyes because the devil's work is to blind people, to keep those blinders up. 
another one of the seeds falls along the path. Uh, or excuse me, along where the rocks are. So there's a little bit of soil. And so it germinates and it takes root. But when the sun comes out, when the pressures of the world, when the times of testing come, we see it dies. There's nothing real there to begin with. The one may seem a little quicker. This one seems a little bit longer. This other one, the third type of seed that's sown on this ground is on the kind of ground that's pretty good, but the weeds come up and choke that seed out. The, the worldly ideas, the worldly pressures, the temptations that come along with that, time reveals genuine salvation or not. You see, it's not that someone looks like a Christian. It's not even that someone sounds like a Christian. It's the fact that someone perseveres to the end. That's the one whose heart has really changed. That's the one that we would say the power of the gospel has changed this person's life. And the Holy Spirit who lives within this person has sealed them until the day of redemption. I remember at one time I would say to someone who had prayed a sinner's prayer... A congratulations now, you're in the family of God. I've, I've toned that back away a lot since those earlier years of ministry. If someone professes Christ and they, they receive Christ and they pray for forgiveness and repentance and, and place their faith in Christ, I now take more of a wait and see approach. It's, well, we'll see if it's genuine. Let's, let's see the fruit of their lives. Let's see if, if they follow Christ or not. If they don't follow Christ, then maybe they just prayed a prayer because other people were. Maybe they prayed a prayer because there was pressure there. I, I, it's, a, it's a wait and see. Let's see what happens in their lives. Let's see the fruit of what comes if there's genuine conversion or not. So it keeps bringing us back to a question, I think, was this person really saved? Someone who departs as it says in 1 Timothy 4.1, were they really saved to begin with? Now, we might can make an argument and say, well, if they were saved and they depart, they will come back. The Holy Spirit will not leave them out there. And I, I think we can make a pretty good case for that. And, and, the, and, and I think we also could say, based on Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. It's why we believe in eternal security. It's not because we can keep and hold on to our salvation. It's that God hangs on and holds on to us. He's promised, if I begin this good work in you, I will carry it to completion. So let's, let's wrestle a little bit more with our text. And we're going to keep coming back to this question of eternal security. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, First, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, later times being from the time Jesus ascended back to heaven after the resurrection until he comes back again. We're living in those later times. And, and as time moves on, the later it becomes, obviously. But in these later times, some will depart from the faith. So our first point today is the departure. The departure of of unsaved members. Notice that the Holy Spirit prepares us for this. And of course, that's in part why this letter is being written. It's one of the reasons God's preparing the church for how to do ministry in that culture. And what is it going to be like so that they're not caught off guard, so they're not necessarily surprised? Sometimes we hear people 
saying they're leaving the faith. And it's, it's shocking. It's surprising. And, and I get it. These are people that we thought were from us, with us, and who are turning aside. But it's not so, it shouldn't necessarily surprise us so much that it should sadden us, break our hearts. Because the Spirit has expressly said this is going to happen. I'm telling you, I'm hearing it more and more. I think you see it in some of the news and some of the reports of people leaving the faith. It shouldn't surprise us. Here it is. The Spirit expressly says that. God has prepared us. He's clearly stated it. Instead of being baffled, again, it should break our hearts. Don't don't let the enemy come along and say, because here's one high-profile Christian who now has denounced the faith, don't, don't let it get to you in the sense, well, is, is it really real? We know that there are going to be people who aren't really saved who are going to depart from the faith. I mean, God, God's told us that. The Scripture says it. So not, this is what the Scripture says, what some will do. They will depart. Now, that word depart is a strong word. We get our word apostasy, a falling away. Apostasy is a leaving and abandoning of biblical truth. This is stronger than some words that might be used to refer to some who are struggling with their faith. When you go back to 1 Timothy 1 verse 6, he said certain persons by swerving from these, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I think the normal part of the Christian life is that there are times that we're going to go through struggles with our faith. You're not unusual. The devil would love to make you think, if you've had that doubt or you've had that thought, you're the only one in the world who's ever struggled with that. And that's just not true. Oftentimes, when there's a thought that pops into our mind or a doubt or an issue that we can't fully explain, it's a time of God wants to draw us to himself. It's an opportunity for growth. It's not an opportunity for, for flight. I, some will flee. Some will run. So if I can't figure it out or if I can't do then I, I just don't have anything to do with it. That's, that's not where we should be. It's normal. When our kids ask questions when they're growing up, That should be a good thing. We should celebrate that they've asked us these hard questions about God and faith and the Bible. These are opportunities for growth for us. And we should find godly people that we would have conversations with. If you've had some doubts, you've had some struggles, you're not quite sure about some different things that the Bible says or or about your faith, have those conversations. Don't live with them just wondering and wondering and doubting and letting the devil attack you in that kind of way. Some will wander from the faith, and we get that. It's, it's not as strong a word as apostasy. Some will even shipwreck their faith. In 1 Timothy 1, in verse 19, did you remember this from an earlier sermon? Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul is treating those people who had shipwrecked their faith with church discipline. 
He's treating them like they're believers. He's just saying, we're taking you out from the protection and the fellowship of the church for now so that you'll see how important it is to walk with God. There was church discipline. So he was treating them as believers. So wandering from the faith or being shipwrecked in the faith are both possibilities for believers. And those who are in God's family, they will be brought back. They will be drawn back. That's a little different from this word of depart, a leaving, a, an, an abandoning. Some people have begun to use a word called deconstruction. They've deconstructed their faith. They've broken it down. They've dissected it. Listen to this uh, definition of deconstruction. It's the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. I remember going to college and having a professor who had said, everything you've learned growing up, you need to leave it at the door. <laughs> you need to check everything you've believed in the past. And it's like, now we're going to really give you truth. And the red flags go up when that happens. I hope red flags go up for you when someone would suggest something like that for you. And even our students who are, who are in college, it, it's, it is an important growing time and we are exposed to a lot of new ideas. But what we take if we've been taught truth growing up is it should be just built on that foundation. It should be built line upon line, precept upon precept. When we taught, we're taught the things of God, we just keep growing. We keep building. We keep growing deeper and more sound and more solid as we walk with God. So again, we come back to our question, can you, can you lose your salvation? Romans 8 is a great passage. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, but look with me for just a second about Romans 8. I, I think in... All of my years of ministry, this is probably the one that pops up the most. Can you lose your salvation? We've talked about it a little bit. I referred to Philippians 1.6 and tried to give you an idea of, of where I think uh, Paul, when he was writing the church at Philippi, tried to say when, when, when God starts that good work in you and you're saved, he will carry it to completion. But Romans chapter 8 has a number of things I think is really helpful. When you look down at verse 28, it's a real familiar verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, pick up this in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, because God knows everything, he knows those who are going to place their faith in him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, think about that for a minute. If God knew that you were going to place your faith in him one day, he predestined that you'd be made like his son. In other words, that's the end result of salvation. When you're saved, there's no stopping you becoming more like Christ. Now, you may wonder. You may even shipwreck your faith. You may, you may go through some really difficult times. I have, I have, again, in testimony, heard people say, I know I, I surrender my life to Christ, and I went through a period of straying and struggling, but I knew that God was with me, and I knew there was conviction in my heart, and I knew I was in the wrong direction, and, and God didn't leave me, but he brought me back to himself. I think that's a pretty legitimate testimony of living in the world. 
You see, when you become a part of God's family, God has predestined that you'll be made in the likeness of His Son. And even though in this lifetime you will not be completely in His image, you'll not be perfect like Christ, when you see Him one day, you'll be like Him because you'll see Him for as He is. It's going to happen for the believer. Now notice in verse 30 of Romans 8, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now think about that. If God called you into his family, he justified you. He legally declared you forgiven for your sin, past, present, and future. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, it's a done deal. You're in the family of God. And you'll always be in the family of God. You're secure in His hand. And some people say, well, you know, you're telling people that. They'll just go and do whatever they want to now. Not if you're in the family of God. You see, the Holy Spirit, who, whom you were given at the moment of your salvation, He lives in you and you're sealed. You're sealed with that Spirit until the day of redemption. And so what does the Holy Spirit do in your life? He teaches he comforts, He corrects, He shapes, He works, and He will never leave you. You can't lose your salvation. Now, at Lawndale, we believe the Baptist faith and message as a statement of truth. Sometimes people say, well, what do you all believe at Lawndale? Well, we believe the Bible. That's our ultimate statement of truth. We believe the Bible, we teach the Bible, we preach the Bible. One document that we've held to that we think is a good systematic collection of what the Bible says in doctrinal form is the Baptist faith and message, and, and particularly the 2000 edition of the Baptist faith and message. You see, the Bible's not, I mean, excuse me, I almost said something really wrong there. People are not inerrant, and confessions are not inerrant. And they are updated sometimes even to speak to current cultural issues. And so that's why we make a big deal of the 2000 version of the Baptist Faith and Message. Listen to what it says about this idea of losing your salvation. All true believers endure to the end. Think about that. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. It goes on to say, Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. I think we underestimate the power of God when we say someone can lose their salvation. You underestimate the impact of grace. You underestimate the power of the Spirit who lives in you. You underestimate the love of a father who's adopted a son and a daughter into his family. God holds on to his family. So as we look back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you see the departure of unsaved members. Now see the deception of unsaved members. He goes on to say, by devoting themselves, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now that's a pretty intense statement, isn't it? It's the root of where false doctrine comes from. False doctrine doesn't come from God. 
God's not saying, well, you know, I'm going to give truth to truth in different ways to a lot of different groups to see if they can all get along together. God's a God of truth. And the Bible is true. What it says is true. And it's not, I read one thing and, and this is my truth and you read the same scripture and this is your truth. There's only one truth. It might apply to us in some different ways, but there's only one thing this text means. And that's part of our joy is seeking out what does this text mean. But why is there so many different beliefs? Why? What's the devil? He's a deceiver. And he would love to lead people astray. And when the devil decided he wanted to be God and be above God, he took with him angels out of heaven, and they're the demons that exist in the spiritual realm. There is a dark spiritual realm that is at work carrying out the desires of the enemy. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to take away from you, your family. He wants to take away from you, your marriage. He wants to take away from you, church. He wants to take away whatever he can. He steals and he kills and he destroys. And whenever you hear something that's contrary to the word of God, you should know where it's coming from. It's from the pit of hell. It's from the devil himself. It's from his working in our world while he has time to disrupt and to destroy and to distort the very Word of God. What else would we expect of Him? But notice, that's the root of it, but the fruit of His working comes through human teachers. Notice in verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Again, it's a pretty strong word that Paul's given Timothy to say those who are teaching according to to the world and according to anything that's contrary to the word of God they're liars, they're hypocrites they have believed a lie it's not necessarily that they they intentionally are lying to people, they may be some are, I'm sure but most of them have believed a lie and, and their consciences are so seared by the world and by the approval of the world, and maybe even their own intellects that they've put above God and His Word, and now they're propagating and teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. If there's ever a man that stands in this pulpit and preaches something contrary to the Word of God, don't stand for it. Don't tolerate it. If you ever find yourself in a church meeting, a meeting of people who, who profess to be Christ and they're teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God, don't stay there. It's, it's the root problem is Satan and the fruit of it is someone whose conscience is so seared that he may actually believe what he's saying, but if it's contrary to the Word of God, it's false. The insincerity, the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. The deception of unsaved members. Now, let me give you the third thing this morning. The description of unsaved members. This is what he goes on to say they're, they're buying into, they're believing. In verse 3, who forbid marriage. The, the root of that is demonic. And the fruit of that is teachers who are communicating things 
not from God, but from the enemy, the liar, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the big, the big problems they were facing had to do with marriage and food. Physical things, good things that God meant for us to enjoy and to appreciate and to experience in good ways in this life that we live. Big problems. So where would the enemy attack? Well, things that God created to distort them. And so view of marriage. Well, how do we define marriage? Well, God said one man, one woman. Genesis chapter 1, Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus defined marriage, he gives us what marriage is. And so any other way to look at marriage or to think about marriage is wrong. Whether it's a teaching or a thought that says you shouldn't even get married. Now, hasn't that become more prominent in our culture? There's this, why would I want to get married? And I would say to you biblically, why would you not want to get married? Unless God's called you not to be married, there is a singleness that we do know from 1 Corinthians 7 that there's a calling involved with. But but God created us to get married and God created us to enjoy this gift of intimacy together in marriage. Don't let the devil steal that from us. Marriage is a good thing. Sometimes when I'm officiating at a wedding, I just say it publicly. It, in some ways, it's like, Rodney, why are you even saying this? This is a given. But I, I say, marriage is good. But I feel like we're fighting against a culture who's making it bad or distorting it or trying to redefine it. And we've got to keep coming back and saying, God made marriage. God created this institution. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But what about food? Again, created by God. And there are those, it's a religious thing almost. You don't eat this or you don't eat that. God's God's made it clear. He created all this food for us to enjoy. Now, the devil works in a couple ways as it relates to food, doesn't it? Sometimes abstain, you know, this asceticism that you're more godly because you don't eat this certain kind of food. But then it could also be on the other side of that indulgence, couldn't it? And the gluttony that says, so the devil can work in all kinds of ways to distort what God's made, whether it be marriage or whether it be food. But God is saying to us, these are good things. So whenever we have big problems, so we don't, do we understand marriage? Do we understand food? These things that God created? Well, let's you keep coming back to the big principles. If you have a problem, keep coming back to the big principles principles of what we know to be true and that's what Paul does here with Timothy he says to him uh, in verse 4 for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving so the big principles God's the creator there is a creator God made us and he gave us he gave us himself to enjoy and he gave us what he created to enjoy now, if you enjoy it for enjoyment's sake alone, then that that's can become an idol. That can become a God. But we enjoy it because it's a gift from God. That's why he says it's to be received with thanksgiving. So there is a creator. What he created is good. And what he created is to be received with thanksgiving. So in other words, some of you are going to like this. Eating can be worship. 
Now, it can be the wrong kind of worship, right? If we're controlled by it and it's, you know, gluttony I and mean, all of that kind of stuff. But if it's received and it's eaten, and, and, and think about it. I mean, some of you, you're, you're getting ready for lunch. I mean, you're already imagining chewing on that steak or that chicken or those nice grown vegetables. You're thinking about savoring that flavor. Now, if you're just sitting there, mmm, this is so good, and, you know, it's, it's all about only what it does for you, then it's not good. But, God, you are so good to provide this food like this. Now, I believe in saying grace. Thank, a prayer of thanksgiving before a meal, no matter where you are. Let's give thanks for what God's given. But it's not just before you eat. Have you ever been eating and you're thinking, God, you've been, you're so good to make us this way, to enjoy what you created. God, we thank you for this. It's, it's an offering back to God. You're living. It's even, it's even like in the morning we tell all of, our, all of our folks at Lawndale, we're telling you, have a quiet time. Have a time when you read the Bible and you pray every day. It's an appointment, whether it's in the morning, afternoon, at night. I mean, just have, have some time you spend with the God. Now, that's not all that you do in relationship with God. It's like, well, I've had my quiet time, so now I'm done with God for today. It's you have your quiet time so you can think about Him the rest of the day and all other times of the day. When we eat, we, we don't say a blessing. Now my, my gift to God is over. I've given Him thanks. No, we, we continue to thank Him even as we eat and then afterwards. And Of course, we can tell when it's been less than worship to God. Maybe after we eat and we're feeling bad. It's been a little overeating after that. But you, you get what I'm saying here. This is the big principle that we need to live life. All that we do is unto God. And if you can't do something as unto God, then we need to come back and make sure we've got the right perspective of, of what it is that we're doing. Now, he finishes out in verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So why, what are you saying, Rodney? You, you're saying food and physical intimacy and marriage. These are, these are holy and good and an offering to God. Yes. How do you know? Well, it's made holy by the Word. The Word of God says it is. We, we come back to the Word of God, and God's Word tells us these things. So it's made holy by the Word. It's important that I know what the Word of God says, and by prayer. God talks to me. God talks to you through His Word. And now through prayer, we talk back to Him, and we give thanksgiving, and we give worship. We're sanctifying it. God's blessed it already, creating it and giving it. And now our response sanctifies it and makes it uh, even good for us. So let's come back to the, our, our big question. If someone is saved or not, or someone can lose their salvation or not. The Spirit who warns us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 is the same spirit that assures us. So I, I would ask you a couple of questions. One, do you understand the gospel? Do you under, if you don't understand the gospel, then there, there, there's probably, in all likelihood, you're not saved if you don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand your sin and what Jesus did for you in paying the price and how he rose from the dead and offers that to you and makes it available to you, then there's a good chance that you're not saved. And I, but I have good news. You can be saved today. 
Do you understand that you're a sinner and in need of forgiveness? You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't join enough churches. But Jesus has already done all that work for you. Have you or will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? His work on your behalf. His death, His resurrection. Will you say, God, I know I can't save myself. I know what I deserve. But I place my faith in what you've done for me. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die in my place. Thank you, God, that you raised him from the dead. And I ask you to come into my life and to save me. And I confess, Jesus, as my Lord, I will follow him for the rest of my life. You see, that's, that's salvation. It's the beginning. And it goes on for eternity. Turn back to Matthew 7 for just a second. This is a powerful warning that Jesus gives to the people around him as he walked here on earth. You see, there were a lot of people who were convinced that they were, they were good people, that surely God would love them, surely God would accept them just as they are, and they were doing a lot of religious things. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a stark statement, isn't it? Not everyone who says, oh, I'm a Christian. Not everyone who even prays a prayer. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, they're the real followers. Those who do His will. The fruit of their lives. They've placed their faith in Christ. On that day, judgment day, there's going to be a big surprise. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. It wasn't, hey, I knew you for a while, but you changed your mind and Now you can't come in. I never knew you. You see, if they had really known him, if they were really in his family, they wouldn't be getting ready to hear what these folks are getting ready to hear. You see, Paul warned that there would be some in the church who would depart from the faith. They would leave. They'd been around the things of God. And and at some point, they chose not to surrender to God, but to go with the world and themselves and do what they wanted to do. And those who make that choice, you know what they're going to hear one day? Those who depart from the faith, they're going to hear, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't say that in any kind of prideful, arrogant, gloating way. I say it in such a sorrowful way because... I know there will be people who sit in churches like Lawndale all across our nation who here depart from me. Billy Graham, in one of his sermons, estimated that as many as 80% of people's names who are on church rolls are not really saved. Isn't that astounding? I think the day we live in with the persecution that 
seems pretty likely that's coming. With things like a disease like COVID-19 that gets people out of the habit of attending a church, I think there's some defining lines that are being drawn. Who, who are the real believers? Who are following Christ? Today I would encourage you, make sure. That's why oftentimes we read the scriptures, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is, has it been real in your life? Has it been real? If you know that you don't know Christ, man, we, we would love to talk with you. If you want to make sure you're a part of the family of God, we'll be available after the service. You can come and you can pray at the altar. You can come and grab one of us pastors or one of the leaders. We'd love to talk with you. I'll be back in Guest Central after the, church, after the service today. Church, this is an important word for us today. Let's pray. Father, you're gracious just in the fact that you've given this warning in your word that some will depart. It's easy to be unsettled in times like these when it seems that people turn away. They renounce their faith. And yet, you've told us that. And so I pray that even in this moment, those who don't really know you. Lord, may this be a time of surrender. May this be a day of salvation. For those who do know you, let it be a time of affirmation and confirmation as they do business with you. God, we commit ourselves to you. Do in us and through us what you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.